this webinar will cover the next step in your investing career. Once you've decided the passive route or real estate investing is the best fit for you, then you need to start vetting potential sponsors. So there's a series of questions to ask yourself prior to speaking to potential investors and additional questions for the sponsor themselves. Um, and these will help you kind of make the best decisions on your investment journey. This webinar is going to be divided into two main sections, questions to ask yourself prior to investing and questions to ask the sponsors. Hey everyone, Lee York here, Investor Relations Lead at FTW Investments. I'm excited to share with you another bonus episode of Invest for the Win. In this bonus episode, we take a listen to our second live investor education webinar, How to Vet a Sponsor. Logan Freeman, our Chief Development Officer and one of the hosts of our podcast, and myself sat down for 30 minutes covering concepts, an additional 15 minutes doing a live Q&A with both prospective and current investors, vetting our experience and investment opportunities. Keep an eye out for upcoming bonus Invest for the Win episodes covering more of our educational webinars. Enjoy. Thanks for joining FTW Investments monthly webinar series for passive investors. You know, we've been receiving a great response from our presentation last month and thought it would be great to build upon the theme of becoming a passive investor. You know, we do these presentations for a few reasons to educate and inform investors about the ins and outs of the private equity space, but also um, a way for our investor network to get access to us in a live forum kind of format, which is very exciting. You know, typically when our investors are getting started evaluating, allocating capital to these types of projects, there's a lot of questions, you know, and we put out a lot of content in regards to these questions on our blogs, social media, and different things, but these presentations are meant to be much more targeted. You know, there's questions about the structure, there's questions about the team, the market, and the deal. In this format, we can present a very specific topic and we can also take live questions. You know, we just hit the 1000 mark in our investor network, which is exciting, but, you know, chatting with all of those people and everyone is a tall task in and of itself. But, you know, Lee is here for that. So, don't feel like we don't have time. It's just there's a lot of folks to talk with. And um, having people join this type of format is, is much easier to do that at scale. Uh, and you get to ask your questions that you've been dying to ask. You know, last month we talked about should you be active or passive? And this week's presentation goes hand in hand with that. Lee, so why don't you kick us off on why this topic for this month? Yeah, thank you, Logan. Um, so as Logan mentioned last month, we covered the difference between active and passive investing, which by the way, I need to say thank you for to the uh, 100 plus people who either registered and watched live or watched the recording. So big thank you for uh, the support and all the positive follow up after that. Um, this webinar will cover the next step in your investing career. Once you've decided the passive route or real estate investing is the best fit for you, uh, then you need to start vetting potential sponsors. So there's a series of questions to ask yourself prior to speaking to potential investors and additional questions for the sponsor themselves. Um, and these will help you kind of make the best decisions on your investment um, journey. So today we're going to arm you with all these questions needed to move forward with any syndication. But before we do that, we are going to hit on some high level terminology that you'll be hearing throughout the webinar. Uh, once we provided some of these brief definitions, we'll jump right into the thick of it. This webinar is going to be divided into two main sections, questions to ask yourself prior to investing and questions to ask the sponsors. If you do your homework up front and do it correctly, you'll be that much more prepared when a deal is placed in front of you. 
Um, at the end, we'll wrap up with some final uh, thoughts and uh, question and answer just like last time. So um, Logan, can you just give us a little bit more color on some of the terms that we're gonna be using today? I have a few listed out here, but please elaborate on any more that you believe will be coming up. Yep, absolutely. And the housekeeping item that I forgot to mention, if you have questions, uh, you can use the chat or the question and answer uh, part of Zoom. So just feel free to use both of those. We have folks monitoring those and we will respond to those um, either throughout the presentation or at the end. So like we mentioned last month, you know, there is a difference in being a real estate investor versus being in the business of real estate investing. So, you know, we kind of broke these out into four uh, terms here. So a sponsor. A sponsor is an individual company. They're in charge of finding and acquiring and, and managing the real estate. So really, they're, they're typically vertically integrated and they control every aspect of the business plan. Then we move to kind of the syndicator. Syndicator is mostly on the marketing and investor relations side of the business. Now, sometimes a syndicator also can be a deal finder. So somebody that's out there knocking down doors and trying to find opportunities that otherwise may have not been um, you know, available for, for LPs. So the, this, the syndicator can raise money. They also can do um, deal finding as well. Now, the general partnership, sorry, the limited partner is you know, a group or one investor that puts their money in as a passive investor. That's really kind of what we're talking about here today. And then a general partnership. So this is the group of individuals that make up the active role in the business. So this can be a mix of sponsors and syndicators, depending on the size of the project, right? If you're taking down, you know, a hundred million dollar project, depending on the capacity of that uh, specific um, investment private equity company, they may need to bring in partners to do that. So when you see the general partnership or the GP kind of uh, term, it could be um, a mix of those sponsors and syndicators. Perfect. Thanks for that, Logan. You know, we're well aware that, you know, depending on how much time you've spent researching or part of syndications that sometimes you're going to hear these terms that uh, might be confusing. It might be a little bit of overload. So we always like to prep um, and preface these, these webinars with, with some of the fundamentals. So uh, let's hop right into it here. Questions to ask yourself uh, prior to even really meeting with a syndicator. You know, it's critical for you to do a self-evaluation prior to investing in any syndication. This will help dramatically improve the quality of your conversations with the sponsors. And that way you can spend the majority of your time getting to know them and not yourself. So what are these three fun, uh, foundational questions to ask yourself? Let's hop into it. What are your investment objectives? This is all about making sure the sponsor that you work with will put, for the most part, deals in front of you that align with your personal goals. Asset types, deal structures, markets, and a wide array of other factors will all impact you slightly differently. I say for the most part, because at some point a sponsor may put a deal in front of you that doesn't excite you, that's just gonna happen. But for the most part, if you know what you're looking for, if you know what your objectives are, um, you'll be able to link up with these sponsors who are experts in specific markets, asset types, and that way most deals will likely align. So Logan, what are some of these areas that investors should consider when putting their objectives on paper? Yeah, yeah, I appreciate that. And, you know, one of my favorite books, you know, Stephen Covey wrote, uh, Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. And he mentions in that book that you need to start with the end in mind. And I think the same is true in this scenario. It reminds me kind of an old management term that I used to see a lot in, in uh, my master's program is OKR. So objective and then key results. And so, 
you need to know what your objectives are and then what are the key results that you're going to be looking for and measuring if that objective was met or not. So questions that I think about is for a, for a passive investor, you know, what are you trying to accomplish? You know, how fast do you want to get there? How do you want to get there? You know, what does your diversification strategy look like? You know, and after you have these goals written down, then it's up to you to find sponsors that align with each one of those OKRs or objectives and key results. But I think the big component here to keep in mind is measuring the success of the objective through key results. And so we'll talk a little bit more about that um, in the presentation, but um, I'll stop there and we'll, we'll keep moving forward. Perfect. Thanks for that, Logan. Um, so the second uh, area that one needs to ask himself is what is their ideal investment time frame? You know, depending on the syndicator, what the asset is, there's going to be a pretty large um, variety of, of asset hold times. Are you looking for, um, you know, quicker asset flips, five to seven year holds, um, or would you prefer very long term 30 plus year holds? You know, knowing what your investment time frame looks like is critical because as we discussed on our last webinar, your investment will be a liquid during the life cycle of the asset. So, you know, Logan, why else is it um, important to have a clear picture of your investment time frame? Yeah. So, okay. So the, the piece that I did not touch on here is kind of the ideal investment. You know, we always have acronyms here at FTW, right? We have OKR, FTW, ideal is an actual um, acronym here. So it stands for income, depreciation, equity buildup, appreciation, and leverage. And so you need to think through that and through many different lenses. You know, there's the financial economy, there's the real world economy. We have geopolitical landscapes that also can factor in here. And each one of these benefits of investing in real estate are dependent upon the market and business plan and asset class and the time frame that you invest in. So, you know, I think it's important to understand the trends that are happening specifically in regards uh, to demographics here as well. And these all play into the time frame. So I'll give a quick example here. So, you know, the United States is home to 77 million baby boomers. As a quick reminder, baby boomers of the 1940s and 1950s were a result of higher birth rates in the decades after World War II. They're also known for making a lot of money and loosening the social norms of previous generations. So this translates now, 2022, to 4,000 people turning 85 every day and 10,000 people turning 65 every day. You know, it's kind of a term that people say, you know, I posted about this, uh, the silver tsunami, you know, it's a metaphor that's used to, to describe the expected increase in the senior population. So and when you think about timeframes on these projects, there's um, different business plans. And we've covered this in detail on our blog and other uh, presentations that we've done. And you have core, core plus, value add and opportunistic. And so each one of those types of projects is gonna have a different timeframe, which also needs to line back up with your objective and the key results that you're measuring, Lee. Perfect. Yeah, thank you for that. Um, so, you know, once you have your investment objectives planned out, Logan did a great job talking through that, along with your investment timeframe put on paper. You know, last really big and maybe the most important piece here is your risk tolerance level. Uh, you know, risk reward is something that we evaluate every day, both in and outside of business. I know that uh, tonight I have my indoor golf league and I'll be evaluating risk rewards of carrying uh, virtual water hazards. So hopefully I assess mine uh, correctly tonight, we'll see. But you know, different types of products, asset types and markets will all have their pros and cons and varying levels of risk. 
It's up to you ahead of time to know what you're comfortable with. That way you have a clear direction reviewing a deal. You know, Logan, I, I, I touched a little bit on a, uh, a personal risk reward, but you know, what else do investors need to you know, assess when, when, when they're thinking through this? Yeah, I'm going to touch on risk and then I'm going to, I'm going to circle back um, on, on how to think about this in regards to the ideal investment. So I think that risk is one of the most misunderstood aspects of a deal. And I think it can be defined as anything that's not part of the plan. So just saying something is high risk can be ridiculous. I mean, a risk that has a high likelihood of occurrence, but a small impact may be completely acceptable. On the other hand, a risk with a medium likelihood of occurrence and a high impact may be completely unacceptable. And so you have to have a risk management plan, which represents different types of risk. Okay, so you have feasibility risk, you have time delay risk, you have a one-time financial cost risk, you have recurring financial cost risk, and you have quality risk. And so how do you manage that risk properly? Well, you need to enumerate the potential risk. You need to understand those. Then you have to qualify those risks. So you have to qualify the time, the feasibility, the cost, the quality. Then you have to determine the likelihood and then quantify the impact if that risk comes true. And then you have to have and develop contingency plans for the risks with higher impacts. And so, you know, you'll see a lot of folks and a lot of sponsors have uh, what they call stress testing in these projects. So there's a number of assumptions that bake into the risk factor for each deal. And this, this stress test will allow you to change those assumptions and see how it impacts the project. I think that's really important to understand. First is that, you know, obviously you can't just say something is high risk. You need to know the likelihood of that risk and you have to be able to try to quantify the impact. And investors have been trying to do this for uh, a long time, but in commercial real estate, it's uh, a lot more tangible, which we're gonna talk about as well. So let me just circle back to the ideal investment really quickly, because I wanna make sure that this slide uh, really hits home and making sure that having a clear picture of your ideal investment um, is really important. So, you know, clarity is crucial to success. And, you know, I think it's been said that if you don't know where you're going, any road is going to get you there. And that's true with your investment as well. So there are longer term investments that these are longer term investments that are illiquid, which means you can't day trade these. So you're not gonna be able to get out of them, you know, in, in 20 days or one day, or whatever it is. You know, that also creates a benefit though, because there's less frenzy that can happen and you can typically see trends easier, which then plays into being able to quantify risk a little bit better than maybe some of the other investments, Lee. Perfect. Yeah, really well said. So, you know, that that's really high level there. Um, some of the self-assessment questions that you can do, um, you know, prior to meeting with a sponsor. I can't stress enough. I mean, it's it's really critical to thoroughly vet any sponsor that you speak to. But I, I, I could argue that it's just as important to know um, where your own values are and what your own goals are and, and how you kind of look at yourself there in the mirror before meeting with these um, sponsors or syndicators. So, you know, once you have the personal investment objectives, your time frame, and your risk tolerance levels, there's a few other areas you could dive into, but these are kind of the, the, the big three for us. Um, you know, you're now ready to vet sponsor options. Having a great feel for experience levels, areas of expertise, and what their motive motivations are is, is critical as they'll be the ones making the business decisions. You know, that's something we touched on again in that last, we keep circling back to that last webinar because these tie together so well, um, you know, and we talk a little bit about your investment being a liquid, you know, the, the sponsors are making the business decisions. So you really need to get to know them. So, you know, with that being said, let's get right into it. Uh, what questions should you know about your sponsor? <clears throat> the first one to ask, and it's a really good 
um, starting place is what their investment strategy and why are you pursuing this strategy with this particular asset? Different assets require different strategies, different markets require different strategies. So knowing why this deal that they're putting in front of you um, has this strategy, why does it all tie together? Um, and it's, it's always best to start with this fundamental question, intently listen to the response. The sponsor should be able to rattle off several reasons why they like the asset type, the market they're in, and why they're implementing the strategies that they do. So, you know, Logan, um, uh, Logan obviously is one of the principals here at, at FTW. How would you answer this question um, from an investor asking you one of the principals here? Yeah, I would say that our investment thesis is to seek assets with intrinsic value. And we, we talk a lot about this. But assets with intrinsic value are tangible and they have implicit value separate from what the investors are willing to pay on the market for them. So cash flowing real estate obviously derives its intrinsic value from the rental income. And over time, rents typically increase because of rising demand due to population growth apart from inflation. And this is the intrinsic value of commercial real estate and what contributes to some appreciation over time. You know, I think that um, a lot of folks are looking to avoid investments that have no value separate from what people are willing to pay for them, uh, especially right now. You know, I don't think some of these investment opportunities generate income and they're not tangible. So um, we want to try to avoid the potential that your investment goes to zero without any tangible asset class. Real estate, on the other hand, you know, affords investors a level of protection. And even in a liquidation, unlike some other equity investments, there are typically assets remaining to distribute to passive investors. And that's the value of tangibility of commercial real estate. And so, you know, I think that um, when I think about investment thesis, we, we think back to value investing versus more of a growth investment model. And what I mean by that is, you know, we are not typically investing in the gateway markets that have a lot of natural appreciation, right? And so we have to we have to find assets that have cash flow and really know how to derive the intrinsic value of those cash flows. And so, you know, obviously we've invested in multifamily, we've invested in retail, we've invested in office, um, and we're looking at investing in some other asset classes. But really, what we're trying to do is understand what the intrinsic value of the current cash flows are, and then being able to uh, look to the future and project out conservatively what those cash flows might be in the future so we can put a value on that. So that's the important part of our investment thesis is really understanding the intrinsic value, finding asset classes that are priced uh, accordingly, and making sure that we have a margin of safety in these types of deals. Because if you don't have a margin of safety built into the deal, um, it's really thin. And so one thing, like we mentioned earlier, the risk, right, is is much higher because you have a lot less margin to operate in those deals. And, you know, as a real estate operator, I mean, I'm, I could tell everyone here on today on the call that, um, you know, nothing goes to plan. I've never seen a pro forma that um, was spot on. And uh, I think that's because we're in the people business, the things that uh, impact our business change. We have the market dynamics that we have to deal with. And that's why the asset management piece is so, and it's, it's just so important when we're thinking about this. So looking for value, looking for intrinsic value and being able to quantify that. You know, what we really typically uh, like to look for is, is um, markets that have attainable housing and attainable housing, meaning, you know, it's a rule of thumb, 30% of your uh, gross income can be allocated towards uh, housing and it still be um, affordable, attainable, whatever term you want to use. We like to find assets that are well below that. So somewhere between the 19 to 23%. And then that allows us 
to push our business plan forward because uh, the market is telling us that those demographics in that area are able to pay our projected rent increases. Same thing on different asset classes as well. Uh, we have different markers that we look at, different demand drivers for retail and office than we do in multifamily, but it's all based on finding what this intrinsic value is, making sure that the market can pay for it. Because if you have the nicest property in um, a market that nobody else is um, really, you know, um, I'll say competing you with you, you'll have a subset of the subset, but what happens if uh, they lose their job? They're probably going to move to a different asset class. And so this thinking through that is, is really important for us, but the markets that we typically like to invest in are Midwest markets. They're um, not in the gateway. We see less of the natural appreciation, which allows us to, to really focus on cash flow and force the appreciation through a cosmetic upgrade or um, some sort of operational efficiency that we can bring through our company. Perfect. Yeah, really well said. So just a few things to point out there, you know, just with that one question, you know, look at how much you learned. You learned about what the markets are that FTW is interested in, you know, how we value, you know, why we like this uh, commercial real estate asset class. You know what? Um, you, you, it's just a simple question. It's a fundamental one, but you learn. I mean, that was a really, really in-depth answer, uh, just from one question. That's what you're trying to do with these uh, these three questions: get as much information that you can. So, um, question number two that is that is really important. It's so important that sponsors are aligned with the investors. We'll touch on that a little bit here in the next slide. But you know, a great way to phrase that is: you know, what skin does the sponsor have in the game? How will the sponsor be compensated? You know, making sure that their motives are aligned with the investor base is one of the most important factors. The big question here to ask internally is if I lose money, do they still get paid? If the answer to that is yes, then, then, then um, you know, I think some follow-up questions are in order. So if you can find an answer to this, you're on the right track. So, you know, Logan, how is FTW Investments aligned with, you know, our investor base and just sponsors as a whole? What does a good sponsor alignment look like? Yeah, I think there's a couple of ways to kind of quantify this. Uh, the first being, obviously, you know, there's money that needs to be outflowed on these types of projects before you even know if a deal is, is going to get past your due diligence phase or not. I mean, you, you want to try to get as far down the road as you possibly can before, um, you know, going under contract and having earnest money go, go um, into a project. But you, you're not going to know everything until you get um, your due diligence file and you start to really uh, dive in. So, you know, I think um, making sure that the sponsors are putting up their own dollars at the beginning of the investment and then alongside uh, investors as well. I mean, that's one of the biggest values alignments um, as well is, is making sure that they're investing. So typically, you know, we're seeing um, on our projects, I mean, uh, as we continue to grow, I, I wish I had a tree that had, um, you know, money on it and I could just pull from it to put into these projects uh, a lot more than we, we typically do. But it's somewhere between six and 10% of the invested equity into each project uh, coming from the sponsorship group. So that's one question that we get asked quite a bit. I mean, the other piece of this is, you know, these are pretty big projects and not all of the time uh, are we having what we'll call non-recourse uh, debt, but signing on the debt, the bank loans or the financing loan for the project is a massive values alignment because, I mean, it is the biggest part of and the biggest piece of the capital stack. And so, you know, being aligned with that, making sure the sponsors have their their names uh, on the debt is, is I think, very important because if that note uh, gets called or something happens or debt service isn't met, you know, it's really up to the sponsors to make that up. So the other way that we 
align uh, with our investors is through our preferred return. So, you know, our investors get paid first and are made whole before we see any cash flow from these properties. So, you know, there's a preferred return that our investors get. And then, you know, basically their uh, capital accounts are replenished. And then after that is when really the, the waterfall set. And so we are aligned to make sure that um, we uh, as sponsors are operating the projects, uh, you know, profitably. If not, then then we're not going to see any of that cash flow. Lee. Yeah, really, really well said again. Um, and and I just this is just such a, a just a critical, critical part of of your vetting process. You know, if you don't feel the investors are aligned with your your motives, um, there there's certainly some red flags there. So lastly, um, and this kind of comes last, you know, naturally in a conversation is is you know what is your exit strategy? You know, depending on how the capital track is capital stack is structured, how LPs get paid, this will likely influence a portion of your profits. And having a clear-cut ex exit strategy that can be explained in detail shows that an investor has thought this far ahead or a sponsor has thought this far ahead. Um, while the answer may not unfold for years, having a plan up front allows for all the decisions to be made during that business plan to be uh, set up for a successful exit. So, you know, Logan, how would you answer, um, you know, this question with, you know, hey, what's your guys' exit plan when this thing goes full cycle? What are you doing along the way to assure that exit plan can be met? Yeah, I mean, this is a question that, you know, I think, sponsors need to be fluid on in the sense that uh, dynamics change. Uh, and I'll give an example of that in a second. But uh, understanding exactly when the best time to uh, exit a project is a part of the asset management plan. Some of the things that you need to be thinking about when you're talking to a sponsor is, okay, you know, what uh, is the time frame for this and why, right? So, I mean, like on a value add deal, um, being able to uh, turn the units as uh, the leases come up and do the renovations on a larger property can take time, you know, and, um, you know, specifically right now, um, you know, it could take longer time, especially during COVID. We saw that. I mean, you, know, you have to be willing to be flexible in that plan in regards to making sure that, um, you know, what's happening in the market, you can you can have a contingency plan on. But um, value add deals are going to take longer because you're adding value. Right. I mean, you're not just waiting for the market to change so you can you can sell on the same NOI at a, at a lower cap rate. So, you know, it takes time to turn the units. It takes time to do the work that we have set out we, we were going to do in the business plan. Things that you need to be thinking about, though, when you're talking to, to sponsors, you know, what is the exit cap rate? You know, I mean, so IRR, you know, is a, is a term that you're going to see uh, a lot um, in regards to the, uh, you know, the, the, the performa and the, the return on investment metrics that you're going to see. And that is really hinders on the exit or the terminal cap rate. And so, you know, I think industry standard is typically to have the, um, the terminal cap rate increase 15 basis points per year while you're holding the property. We typically go from somewhere between 18 to 22, um, mostly because we're in the Midwest. And so, you know, uh, cap rates are not going to compress maybe as much here. It's started to, to change a little bit, but um, as it would in the gateway markets, but you really need to understand what the exit cap rate is. And I'm going to give an example of the Broadway Heights deal that we recently did. And, and because this is important, because, you know, when we looked at the exit cap rate, you know, we, we look at the market uh, sales comps as well. And we want to be conservative in this in this metric, because, you know, just because you raise the cap rate uh, 15 to 20 basis points per year, uh, and maybe it's a three to five year hold at the end of that, if you have your projections and you look at your NOI, you know, you divide it by your cap rate, you're going to get your price, right? And so, or your value. Um, and so you need to make sure that that is in line with the current market. And if it's not, 
then you need to be a little bit more conservative because you know there's always new product coming online, setting new benchmarks, and you're going to be competing with that on a value add project. So I mean, I think looking at the ex, you know the terminal cap rate is really really important when we're looking at exit strategy. But it's like ask a sponsor how many what's the percentage of units that you want to get turned before you look to sell the property? Or you know maybe you're thinking about other metrics. Is it an NOI number that they're looking at before they want us to, to be able to sell the property? And I think you need to know that because on a large portfolio that we own here in Kansas City, you know, we had a seven year hold on this project. And, um, you know, we're talking to uh, a few folks in the industry that are saying, hey, look, you, know, you can get this per door for your property. And um, we've already sold a few of them, you know, in the neighborhood for that. And here's kind of where you guys are. We know what you purchased it for. Um, we have to evaluate um, the risk adjusted return in regards to holding that property just because we're trying to hit a current NOI number versus somebody going to come pay for the risk, right? So they're going to go pay for the risk at a higher price saying they can get to that NOI that we um, thought we were going to in five years and pay that same price. Then you look back at the marginal rate of return for that project and you say, okay, well, you know, do I stay on and um, try to push the NOI and sell at that, um, that price that we said we were going to, or do we take it right now? And that's just a, that's an asset management kind of question. That's a market dynamic question that you have to answer. But as you can tell, you know, being in the market, knowing what things are trading for, understanding the NOI for the projects, seeing where you, you legitimately think that it can go. If you have a current offer at this time, you, it, you, it's a fiduciary responsibility to review that and make a, an investment decision going forward on that. And, and I think that's really important to be able to talk through with passive investors. There's two typically, um, you know, exits out of these projects, right? You can either sell the project or if it's a value add project and the debt markets are um, substantially better or they're still really, really, you know, uh, preferential to the, to the borrower, you can refinance. And that is, you know, um, technically called an exit as well if you get some of the investor's capital back and it's still cash flowing. So those are two ways that you can typically exit these projects. Um, and the sponsor needs to be able to talk through that. Um, and, and, and the refinance is going to be very, very uh, important to know what the the uh, senior debt is on the project because um, there's there's different types of prepayment penalties that you have to think through and that also will impact the uh, investment and the, the business plan as well. Perfect. Yeah. Thank you. And and that's just you know that kind of a response is really what you're looking for. You know, just the simple you know well we're going to hold it and hope someone buys it at the end. I don't think many sponsors are out there actually saying that, but you know there needs to be you know, hey, this is our business plan. This is our time frame. It shouldn't be time sensitive. Um, you know, th those are the types of questions, you know, all three of these, you know, how are you being compensated? What skin do you have in the game? What's your investment strategy? What's your exit strategy? What you're trying to do is, I mean, the answers to these are really important, um, the, the, like the actual answers, but, you know, how much thought they put into it is, is just a great indicator of, of how much time has gone into finding each deal. Clearly, Logan gave, um, you know, pretty impressive answers on all of those. So, we, you know, FTW, we put a lot of thought into getting these questions answered. Um, so how, how to achieve investor alignment, you know, that's something we spoke on just a little bit ago. And, and what are the six signs to predicting behavior? This is an area that uh, Logan's going to cover here for us. And, and again, it's just one of the most important things is to be aligned with the investor base. Logan, why don't yeah. you go ahead and walk through this one? I appreciate that, Lee. You know, all of the stuff that we talked about uh, previously is pretty tangible and uh, pragmatic. Um, th this is more of a gut check, right? And 
Um, you know, I was blessed with uh, some talents in regards to individualization and emotional intelligence that I have not, must be probably growing up with two sisters and a mom that I was always in, you know, their feelings and listening. But um, at the end of the day, you know, all the things that we said, you know, previously, um, those those are kind of just the basics, you know, and those things need to be uh, covered pretty quickly. But it's going to come down to really how you feel. And how, how is the sponsor making you feel in regards to uh, this project? You're going to have a gut feeling. Um, so this is from Robin Dreek's book. Robin Dreek is a FBI, was, a, was an FBI agent uh, working to uh, get Russian spies to collaborate with him, uh, with the FBI, which is not an easy task to do. And so he really wrote this book to talk through the six signs of predicting behavior. And these are very important when you're talking to a sponsor. And so I'm just going to go through them really quickly. Vesting. So this is really around, does the person believe that they're going to benefit from your success? And so that can be uh, tied back to values alignment in regards to how the deals are structured. So that's that's an easy one to kind of pair to something that we talked to uh, previously. Longevity. You know, does this person think that they're going to have a long-term relationship with you? And this is important as well. You know, we spend a lot of time on these webinars doing presentations. Lee and I spend a lot of time talking to investors uh, because we are in the relationship game. When I think about every aspect of our business and how we have grown, how we continue to grow, it's based on relationships. And it's a part of our intellectual capital model is relationship capital. And it's relationships, not just with investors, but relationships with vendors, with owners, with um, different types of uh, people that we have to interact with uh, to make these deals successful. So making sure relationships are really strong is, is really important. Reliability. You know, can this person do what they say they're going to do? So if Lee says, hey, I'm going to follow up with these three things and we're going to talk on this date, does he show up on time? You know, do I show up on time? Are we focused? Are we intent? Are we energized? Are we ready to show up and talk? And that time that we allocated is for you and what you have accomplished. Or uh, can you tell that somebody's on the phone or they're dealing with a lot of different things? They feel stressed out. All of that. It's reliability, right? Uh, actions. So, you know, what kind of actions are they taking? You know, um, when you meet with somebody, um, you know, are, how's their body language, things like that. Uh, the language. So, you know, do they communicate in a positive way or, um, you know, do they uh, have a uh, kind of a downtrod, you know, uh, behavior? And, and I, I say this because I do a lot of, um, you know, different podcast interviews and speaking engagements. And I can definitely tell uh, when I jump on, um, kind of what type of language to use for the group that I'm speaking with based on who's interviewing me, right? And so it's making sure that you understand that and meeting people where they're at. And then stability, this is really important. I'm, I attribute this back to kind of, you know, my, my collegiate football days was, you know, as an offensive lineman, I really had to focus on staying stable throughout the whole game. I had a job to do every single day, showing up every single play because uh, I wasn't a wide receiver, I was an offensive lineman. I, I didn't get to take a playoff if it was a run play to the right and I'm over here on the left. I had to block the guy in front of me no matter what. And so um, I think it's very important to understand stability, uh, especially when we're talking about these types of investments and uh, being able to weather that storm. So understanding emotional uh, stability throughout these deals, you're going to get a feel when somebody's talking and you ask a question. And, um, you know, you could think about, OK, so did did they think about this question before or is this the first time they're getting asked that? Uh, and you're going to have to use your own judgment for that. So I just wanted to talk through kind of the more intangible things that you need to be thinking about when you're talking with a sponsor um, and, and try to get as much time with them as you can. Right. And so you got to come prepared with with questions as well. There's great you know, there's great lists of questions to ask out there. We dialed it into a few different uh, aspects of the business here that we thought were most 
uh, beneficial. But this is a topic we could talk on for another 35 or 45 minutes. But I think that if you get through the tangible kind of pragmatic questions that we asked earlier and you pair that with kind of these intangible emotional or behavioral questions, you're going to start to see and feel a certain way uh, and they're going to feel comfortable either moving forward or not. And I think that's really important because, you know, I mean, in today's day and age, we're not able to meet every investor. And so we do a lot of Zoom calls and making sure that we're trying to, you know, show these different body language pieces um, because, you know, talking on the phone, you can only get so much. So I'll leave it at that, Lee. Uh, we can open it up for some questions unless you have something else that you wanted to cover here. Yeah, no, I was just going to really quickly uh, say it's just, you know, reading between the lines on a lot of that. It's just like just meeting anybody else, you know, do they show up on time? Um, you know, do they communicate well? It's just it's just all the other small pieces as well need to be identified and, and noted and and just get get yourself to a, a place where you're comfortable. So we're going to get to Q&A here in just a couple of minutes. I see a few questions coming in. Um, Logan, do you have any closing thoughts you want to touch on here uh, before we hop right into the questions? I went long on a few of my points anyway, so I will just, we'll just dive in because we, yeah. we've already running over time. You got it. Sounds good. So we have a question here. Uh, who are the guarantors on the mortgage mortgages? Yeah, that's a good question. So, I mean, um, if we go back to uh, the slide on the, I think it was the first one with the, the breakdown of a sponsor syndicator, um, you know, general partnership, you know, it's going to be the GP. So the general partners are typically the, um, the key principles or the KPs that will be signing on the loans. You know, our investors um, do not sign on uh, the loans on these projects. And so um, the risk that they have in regards to a capital commitment is the risk, the, the money that they initially invested into the project. Yep. And just a quick follow up there. I mean, if you remember the uh, the last webinar as well, that was one of the big differences between active and passive investing, right? If you're an active investor, oftentimes you have to guarantee the loan yourself. Uh, it's one of the benefits of being a passive investor in a syndication. Um, Logan, how long does the, and I can kind of actually answer this one, how long should the vetting process uh, take with a uh, syndicator. And, and, you know, I, I have communicate or, you know, I speak to people every single day for the majority of the day. Um, and, and it really depends on what you're comfortable with. The big piece here is, is making sure that you're comfortable. I have um, some people who have been a part of syndications for a long time. They've done many of them. And really, they're just wanting to check in, see what we're working on, um, what we're seeing in the markets. Um, and we have others where I'm, I'm having follow-up calls and enjoy it, where we're still working through definitions and we're working through webinars such as this. And it's, it's whatever it takes to, um, you know, make sure the, the uh, investor is comfortable. And that's, that's what we're here for is, is, is doing that. Yeah, I'll add to that. And, you know, I think it comes down to a few different points here. Um, sophistication level of the investor um, you know, if you are somebody that is just allocating money to investments like this, then, you know, you probably have your checklist. And if it's marked and, and uh, it's taken care of, you, you probably feel pretty comfortable. Then we have, you know, brand new investors who um, are now just learning about these types of uh, private uh, investments. And so uh, there's going to be a, a larger and a longer uh, learning curve. And what we've tried to accomplish is not necessarily shorten that that learning curve, but making it easier. And so, I mean, there is a, you know, a world of information um, out there. And the best advice that I can give is find some groups that you really feel comfortable with and then dive into their content and their, and what they're putting out, because 
you know, there's going to be differing opinions out there. And a lot of them are geared to what they're selling. And so what you're trying to accomplish is, is find more of a academic uh, type of education when it comes to these investments. And so groups that we always take a look at is, you know, obviously, what are the endowment funds allocating to? What is Tiger 21 allocating to? What are they educating on? You know, what's Blackstone doing? What are these larger groups that have the most resources available to them? What are they focused on? And what are they educating? And, and that's really important. So, you know, we have education all the way down from you know, what, what is a, uh, what is NOI, right? What is net operating income all the way up to, Hey, how much of my portfolio should be allocated into commercial real estate or how should I be thinking about that? And so that we have education kind of based on uh, the different level of the investment, where they're at in the spectrum. And I think that's really important to know too, because it's, um, you know, not trying to shorten this learning curve, but making it easier to understand and in a way that you can communicate with somebody. And the last thing I'll say, if, if um, you know you want to put a rule of thumb on when when can you uh, feel comfortable or how long should the learning curve be, uh, when you can get one of your friends that has never uh, invested into real estate or private placement or anything like that to understand what you're going to invest in or what you're thinking about investing in without them having to you know read a, a book on it, uh, that's probably a pretty good level. So when you can teach somebody else uh, the mechanics, uh, the business plan and why you're looking at investing in these, that's a pretty good uh, you know, sign to say, you know, I think we got a pretty good handle on this. Perfect. Uh, two more quick questions here. Um, one we didn't touch on, that's a pretty hot topic, is track record. You know, how should an uh, investor evaluate track record? Are there any red flags? How much weight should they put into an uh, operator's track record? What are your thoughts on that? Okay, I got two thoughts on this. So as sponsors, you know, track record is is always brought up. So you you look at what's in the portfolio currently. Um, what what have you exited out uh, successfully? What um, you know what does the team look like? So one thing you want to understand from a track record standpoint is you know does everything uh, hinder on one person, right? And that's a big difference I think between you know sponsors and syndicators is you know you'll have a lot of syndicators that are uh, specialized and very, very good at, at, at marketing and investor relations and, and raising money for, for projects, um, but they're not necessarily set up to be operators. And so you have to make a choice on the type of group that you're looking to invest in. And you wanna make sure they have a team that can handle certain things, right? So, um, you know, investor relations, marketing, operations, asset management, finance, accounting, these are all parts of this business. And that needs to be baked into track record as well, because, you know, just because somebody might have a great track record uh, as a single individual, uh, you know, when they were just getting started, as they continue to scale, they're, they're managing more projects, you know, you're, you're gonna need to see that their team has really started to be built up. In regards to the way that you classify sponsors, so you think about this in a couple of ways. You have emerging sponsors. So these are folks that are kind of getting started. Then you have middle market kind of managers that have $100 million of assets under management. Uh, they have a team and they're continuing to grow. They're hungry. They're looking for new opportunities. And then you have really experienced kind of veteran sponsors. Veteran sponsors are going to be uh, less hungry to uh, grow and bring deal flow, uh, but they're probably going to have a very 
uh, successful looking track record. Um, I would say, look at when they got started in the business. When did they make their investments? Lots of people um, who bought in 2010 and 11 uh, look like geniuses if they're still holding on to their real estate or they sold you know, earlier this year. You want to see somebody who has been buying through um, different cycles and managing through different cycles in regards to this uh, track record and experience. Uh, and you want to vet the team out too and making sure that they have uh, a team that can handle the capacity that they're looking to, to continue to scale for. So the best sponsors that I know that I align myself with are ones that are taking this very seriously as a business. Um, they can pay staff because they have uh, cash flow in their actual business uh, and they're not hindered uh, or they're not um, you know, pressed to go make the next acquisition because um, they're trying to, you know, either build that track record, make their team, um, or make make some money on on a project. Because um, when I look at the projects that we completed uh, in the last twelve months, we could have done double. We probably could have done triple. But would they have been the right investments? Absolutely not. You know, and so um, you have to make sure that um, you understand where sponsors are in regards to emerging middle and, and experience. And I would say that, um, you know, a lot of people's kind of benchmark is that, you know, do, does this sponsor have $100 million of assets under management? I think what, um, you know, is changing in the marketplace is, you know, a lot of people are saying, hey, show me all of the deals that you've exited. Well, if you got started in the last three to five years, um, you may have not exited a whole lot of projects, right? And so, uh, because you're still implementing the business plans. And so I think that's really important to understand that, um, you know, whenever we talk to more institutional capital sources, they have different buckets of emerging uh, sponsors, and they're going to look at those sponsors in a different way, just as if they're allocating money into a different type of real estate or a type of, um, or geographic location, they're also allocating money into uh, experienced sponsors, middle market and emerging because they have different risk profiles, but they also have different return profiles, Lee. Perfect. Yep. Thank you for that, Logan. And we're right here at uh, 445. So any questions that did not get answered or were not put into chats, here is a contact page. This is my contact info there, uh, my email address. I'll make sure to get everything answered. We will have a recording going out shortly after this webinar concludes. Um, and then we will um, hopefully be hearing from from quite a few of you on on follow up questions. We'll we'll start preparing again for another uh, March educational webinar where um, you know once we have a topic and and we'll we'll let everybody know what's on the agenda. So I appreciate everybody being here. Uh, thank you very much for tuning in. Like I said, look for this recording and make sure to schedule some time with us to chat. We'd love to uh, you know either start that conversation with you all or continue it. So thanks everybody for joining. Thank you. Thank you for tuning in to Invest for the Win. If you found this episode valuable, please take a moment to share it with a friend you think could benefit from the insights of our experts. Also, don't forget to take a moment to leave us a rating and review. Visit investforthewin.com to learn more.